Hello, good morning, everyone. My name is Cor. It is good to see all of you uh, here in person and our friends online. Thank you for joining us this morning. It's my privilege to read the scriptures to you this morning. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Romans fifteen seven through 12. So welcome each other in the same way Christ also welcomed you for God's glory. I'm saying that Christ became a servant of those who are circumcised for the sake of God's truth in order to confirm the promises given to the ancestors and so that the Gentiles could glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, because of this, I will confess you among the Gentiles and I will sing praises to your name. And again, it says, rejoice Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and all the people should sing his praises. And again, Isaiah says, There will be a root of Jesse who will also rise to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will place their hope in him. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading. Found in Luke 1 verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercy toward us. As we listen to your word now, uh, being read, being taught, would you open up our hearts, Lord, to hear you. Come Holy Spirit. May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of all of our, our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Help us to hear what you're saying to us. We pray now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Man, it is so good to be with you on a Sunday morning. Now we're not stumbling off of our couches with that mid-afternoon stupor, especially the way the Broncos have been playing. Although someone did say, no, uh, did you switch to morning services because the Broncos are playing in the evening? And I just say no comment to that. Uh, but I will say that it is also another upside of this is that we get two services in 9 and 11, which as a preacher really helps me because whatever mistakes I made in the 9, I'm going to correct now in the 11. So you guys are really going to hear the real thing um, although maybe I shouldn't set the bar that high. Uh, We're just so thankful to see you. We're in a series um, during Advent called A Revolutionary Advent. A Revolutionary Advent. The word Advent means uh, arrival. And so when we've called this series A Revolutionary Advent, we're talking about how Jesus' arrival is revolutionary. And I told a story last uh, Sunday night of a time when a friend of mine seven years ago or so, Dan O'Brien, Dan and I were uh, in England together. I was presenting a paper. He was kind enough to accompany me. And we had some sightseeing time and we were uh, visiting one of the colleges at Oxford and he struck up a conversation with a young student, an undergrad who was studying history. And he said, well, what 
what aspects of history? And she says, well, I'm particularly interested in revolutions. And his face lit up. And he says, well, which revolutions? Hoping she'd say the American. And, and she said, well, mostly the French Revolution. And he, being a good um, American patriot, you know, having served in the Air Force, he said, well, how come not the American Revolution? And this, our polite uh, British new friend uh, said, well, b- because it's not technically a revolution. <laughs> And uh, we, both of us now were taken aback, and we said, what do you mean? It's called the American Revolution. And she said, well, you know, technically a revolution requires the king no longer to remain on the throne. That they're actually, I know some of you are like just thinking about this for the very first time. You're welcome. And, and, and a revolution requires the king to actually be removed from power, oftentimes, as in the French Revolution, like his head removed uh, from the rest of his body. And, and so they were saying it's, it's more accurately sort of this rebellion. Now, I bring that up not just to have a little fun about whether it was a revolution or not. I bring it up to make this point to you. The arrival of Jesus was not so a group of little followers could have private, quiet times and have a nice little pious devotional life and follow their own little sectarian king. The arrival of Jesus was not so we could add one more option of private religion on the table that was already crowded with pagan gods and options. The arrival of Jesus was meant to clear the deck and say, the real king has come. The arrival of Jesus was meant to clear the deck and unsettle every other ruler and say, the true king has now come. God himself has come to be king. It's revolutionary. It's very easy for us sometimes as modern Christians to kind of imagine Christianity as our private personal religion. So I'll have my religion, you have your religion, I have my belief system, you have your belief system. It wasn't like that. That wasn't the announcement of the first followers of Jesus. They weren't saying whatever suits you. They were saying there is only one Lord and Savior. And it's not Caesar. It's not any other insert name of local deity. It is Jesus Christ. The only Lord and Savior. And that's revolutionary. It, it surely is meant to upset and, and, and unsettle every other throne and every other ruler. In fact, in Matthew's nativity account, this is why you have King Herod, king of the Jews, quote unquote, who, maintained, who obtained and maintained his throne through manipulation and murder. This is why you have King Herod being very bothered by the fact that there's some sign in the heavens of another king being born. It's meant to un- un- unsettle and destabilize. It's meant to put every other ruler and every other throne on notice. But it's also meant to invite us into an upside-down kingdom. Not only does it upset and unsettle existing rulers, it's also meant to say, and there's a different way of using power in kingdom. And you recall this from our series through Revelation, where Pastor Jason did such a great job week after week showing us this different kingdom. The gospel writers, when they introduce us to the birth stories of Jesus, they show it to us right away. This is going to be a king who arrives in, uh, excuse me, there's no room for him, and he, he, and he arrives in a manger? Like, what is this humble birth, this unspectacular arrival, and he's somehow the king? Right off the bat, we're meant to see how revolutionary Advent is. In fact, a revolution 
And one way of seeing it is that a revolution requires the restructuring of power and the reordering of society. Just from a secular standpoint, you'd say a revolution requires the restructuring of power and the reordering of society. And this is exactly what Jesus' arrival does. It says, you're not really in charge. You're not really in charge. You're not. And even you are not really in charge. I alone am the king. And my kingdom is not like any other kingdom You've seen last week, in week one, we said the revolution is personal, and we talked about what it means for God to see you in your low state, in my low state, what it means, how revolutionary it is, how personal it is to see that God sees us and that others will see what God has done. This morning, we're going to explore what it means to say that the revolution is not just personal, but it is universal. It's not just personal. It's not meant to be a private religion, a little personal option, interior spirituality alone. It's meant to be this earth-shattering, cosmic, universal truth, a public truth. Luke 1 verse 50 is our text for this morning, and this is the line of Mary's song, The Magnificat. It says, he shows mercy to everyone, mercy to everyone from one generation to the next, who honors him as God. And the first and most obvious thing we see from this lyric of her song is that God's mercy is for everyone. God's mercy is for everyone. Now here we are, many of you have been around church or you've at least got some familiarity with Jesus and you're like, I kind of know, isn't Jesus sort of super kind to everyone? And so when you hear this phrase, you're like, well, duh, like, yeah, it's for everyone. I mean, that's the Jesus thing. But I want to show you for a moment how paradigm shifting this might have been for some Jews in the first century. For some, I'm not saying everyone, but, but think about how they, what the stories they were kind of nurtured on. Holly and I and our teenage daughters are uh, doing a Bible through one year thing, except we started in September. So a little, little late, I'm not very traditional of when you start a Bible in one year thing, but we started in September. And so every day on our apps, you know, we're each listening or reading it on our own, and sometimes we'll talk about it. And when you read through, oh, by the mercy of God, we have just finished Leviticus and Numbers. We're into Deuteronomy. But it is striking and, and very disturbing that once in a while you'll read these phrases where it says, and show them no mercy. And you're like, oh no, show them no mercy. And you understand why you arrive at Jonah, the prophet, to the Assyrians, to Nineveh, this brutal and harsh, terrorizing empire. And you, you, you understand maybe a little bit of why Jonah is the only prophet and preacher in the history of preachers to think that God's mercy was bad news. You read the book of Jonah, and he's like, I knew it. I knew you were merciful. Like, is that the only preacher ever who has preached good news, of, of God's, oh, preached God's mercy as bad news? But you kind of understand it. You're like, these are people who understood. There's some brutal civilizations. There's some barbaric practices. People are doing child sacrifice, and people are slaughtering and taking over. And you're like, yeah, have no mercy on them is right. But it, in the Old Testament, there is a tension even within the text. We heard this morning our Old Testament reading where from the very beginning God calls Abraham and he says, I'm calling you not so we can annihilate everyone else. Ultimately, I'm calling you so that we can bless all the families of the earth. 
And that actually becomes the mission statement of God's plan in the scriptures. And so you're like, wait, your plan is to bless all families, but some families we want to show no mercy to. And so when you arrive in the, in the first century, Mary's singing the song, he shows mercy to everyone. There would have been some Jews that are saying, not so fast, Mary. What do you mean he shows mercy to everyone? Don't you understand that we're living here under Roman rule? We're living here under the oppressive regime of an empire that certainly, surely deserves God's judgment. See, what Israel had somehow done by the time you get to the first century is they had drawn a very small circle around who gets God's blessing and who gets God's mercy. This is what happens to us in life. We go through enough hardship, we experience enough opposition, we experience enough pain and hurt, and where maybe as children we were like, you know, showing mercy to everybody, we're like, hi, hi, how are you, hi, I'm, you know, we have a kid like that. And something happens as life goes on, you draw smaller and smaller circles, and you're like, you know what, how about just mercy for us? I don't know about those people. And Mary arrives and she's just singing, he shows mercy on everyone. It's interesting to me that Luke points out this theme because Luke is the only Gentile author of a New Testament book. He's the only non-Jewish person who writes a book of the New Testament, unless the author of Hebrews, we don't really know. But Luke writes his gospel in a way to show us, to highlight God's mission to the marginalized. Listen to this. Luke 4 is when Jesus shows up in the synagogue a good Jewish worship service. And he walks up to the front, gets the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and opens up to Isaiah 61 and he starts reading, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and he has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners. And he says in verse 19, the recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, people who might have memorized Isaiah 61 would say, you forgot a line. Because actually it says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the vengeance of the Lord. And every good Israelite who had had enough of those enemies kicking us around would have wanted the true Messiah to say, and the year of vengeance of the Lord. If the anointed one, and Jesus Stops right there. The year of the Lord's favor. Rolls up the scroll. Says, by the way, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wink, wink. I am he. I am the anointed one. And then he sits down. And it says they wanted to stone him. Why? Because he was proclaiming to be the Messiah? Maybe. Or maybe was it he was proclaiming to be a Messiah that came announcing favor for everyone. And no more the vengeance that they had hoped. You kind of get clues of this because right after that scene, you have Jesus. Luke tells us all these things. I just want to list a few highlights in Luke's gospel. As the only Gentile New Testament writer. Right after this story, he tells the story of Jesus healing a man in a synagogue with an unclean spirit. A person with an unclean spirit would have been assumed that you, surely you've done something wrong. Demons don't just come on anyone. You must be a rebellious person. You must, you must have messed up on your offerings this year. You must not have been tithing. You must not have and fill in the blank. Jesus heals them. 
Luke 4, Jesus heals all who are sick and afflicted. Understand that for many Jews at this time, they had interpreted parts of the Old Testament. They had missed out the themes of God's mercy and interpreted a very rigid kind of version of this. If I'm obedient, I'll get blessings. If I'm not obedient, I won't get blessings. And therefore, if I'm sick, I must be cursed. Therefore, I must be disobedient. Jesus keeps shattering that way of thinking. And then Luke 5, he calls disciples and he doesn't call the faithful people, look, sometimes in church world, Pharisees are like the known villain. We're like, oh, Pharisees, oh, they're the bad guys. Do you know, if you knew a Pharisee in the first century, you, they would have been the most awesome neighbors to have. They would have been incredible citizens. They were the role models of society. These are the people who knew the Torah, who memorized the Torah, who tried everything they could. These people were never uh, arrested for a speeding ticket. These people always had their tags and registration up to date. I mean, these are like outstanding people. And Jesus doesn't call Pharisees as disciples. He calls fishermen. And you're like, I don't know, Jesus. What what are you doing? Why are you calling fishermen? Then next he heals a leper and a paralytic. Next he's eating with tax collectors. You're like, no, it's one thing to call fishermen. They're kind of sketch. But tax collectors, these are known collaborators with the enemy. Compromising, self-serving, dirty, rotten Then Jesus gives his sermon on the plain in Luke 6, where he says, blessed are the poor, not poor in spirit. In Luke, it's just blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry, not those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, just blessed are the hungry. And then he says, blessed are those who weep. I mean, again, a certain reading of some of the Psalms and some of the Proverbs led some Jews to be convinced that the sign that you were blessed was if you were prosperous, If your vats were overflowing with wine and your barns with wheat and your children around the table like the fruit of the olive vine or whatever the Psalm 112, I think it is, that says, you would have had certain impressions of this. Not the hungry, weeping, poor. You're like, those are not living the good life. Those are obviously not blessed. Jesus is upending this. In fact, Luke's gospel also gives us some parables that are unique to Luke, one of them being the parable of the Good Samaritan. Imagine telling a story where the hero of the story is not a priest or a Levite. Talk about the holiest of the holy, the best of the best, the cream of the crop. No, I'm going to make the hero of the story the Samaritan. And in Jewish thinking in the first century, there was Jews and then there was Gentiles And then there were Samaritans. Because it's like, at least if you're a Gentile, you have a way of becoming Jewish. But if you're a Samaritan, you're like pretending you belong. You're a half-breed. There's a, people wouldn't walk through Samaria if they needed to go somewhere. They would avoid even going to those towns because these are people that are moving into homes and neighborhoods and taking over the land of Israelites who deserved it. Jesus makes the hero of his story a Samaritan. And then, of course, the famous trilogy of parables Jesus tells in Luke 15 parable of a lost sheep what's the ratio of lostness there do some math with me one out of a hundred right goes for the 99 then he says actually there's a woman with 10 coins and one gets lost what's the ratio there one out of 10 come on somebody you're like I'm not sure it's 10 percent okay good very good 
And then he tells the story of two sons, one of which squanders his inheritance, and you're like, oh, 50%. Is it me? Am I lost? And then by the end of the story, actually both sons are lost. The father leaves the house for both sons. And so his ratios go from 1% to 10% to 50% to 100%. You see what Luke is trying to show us through Jesus? God's mercy is for everyone. Luke, the Gentile, wants us to know that God's mercy is for everyone. But secondly, God's mercy is meant to flow through us to others. God's mercy is meant to flow through us to others. Luke 6, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? What credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love you. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? In the world of the ancient Near East in the first century, reciprocity was the rule of relationships. Give to those who can give back to you. Scratch the back of those who can scratch yours. Give favors to those who can pay you back because that's how the, the society keeps its stratification. If you were on the higher strata of society and you help someone in the lower strata, they can't actually help you. Now you're messing with things. And the first century world was very clearly stratified. We have a lot of Greek and Roman writers who explained how to keep the status quo, literally. How to keep the stratification of society. Jesus is saying, yeah, but if you do that, everybody does that. Everybody knows how to give to those who can give back. Everybody knows how to be kind to those who are kind back. And then he says... But love your enemies. And if you were listening to Jesus in his sermon here, you would have said, enemies? Samaritans? Romans? Gentiles? And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful. I love this. It's Jesus reinterpreting the Old Testament for people who maybe miss the main point. You ever have that happen where you read a story and you think it's about this, or you watch an episode and you're like, it's all about that? And you're like, no, that's actually not the main theme. And Jesus is like, did you forget that the revelation of Yahweh in the Old Testament is that he's kind? He's kind. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And then he says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. What Jesus is saying is that the scope of our mercy needs to match God's. The scope of our mercy needs to match God's. And the uncomfortable question for us maybe is, who do you believe is outside of God's mercy? Or maybe to put it another way, who's outside your circle? That you're like, well, I'm good with God being good to these people. I'm not so sure about God being good to those people. Who is that? Is that someone... Maybe it's a different neighborhood, a different part of town. Maybe it's someone in a different political party. Uh-oh. Now we're meddling. I can't believe they voted for Trump. I can't believe they voted for Biden. I can't believe that. Who's outside that circle for you? And in 2020, I mean, you could just invent any issue, you know, like masks, no masks, pro-vaccine, skeptical of vaccine, I mean, just, we just inventing reasons to draw circles. Who's outside the scope of that circle? Who's the person that you're like, I don't know about that. I don't know if I want God to be good to them. And I think 
We, if a revolution really is the reordering of power and the restructuring of a society, then we need to understand that God's mercy radically restructures our, our hierarchies, even our subconscious hierarchies. Here's what I mean by that. I think subconsciously we develop a hierarchy of mercy. And you know who's at the top of the hierarchy of mercy? The people who are most like us. If you read a news story and it's a person who looks like you, sounds like you, talks like you, lives in your kind of neighborhood, a suburban person who does something wrong, you're like, oh, well, I mean. And you hear it. You hear it come out of you. You're like, well, I mean, because you're thinking, well, any of us could have done that. But you read a story of someone who maybe looks different from you, different socioeconomic level than you, different part of town than you, different whatever than you, and you, you, you read a story of them receiving a harsh treatment, you're like, well, they deserved it. We have subconscious hierarchies of mercy. And often at the top of the hierarchy are the people that are most like us. And the people that are not like us, we're like, well, I don't know if they deserve mercy or not. Probably not. Because you know, dot, 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 fill in the blank. Probably not. They, they probably don't deserve mercy. Jesus says mercy is flowing like a rushing river. And it's overrunning our artificial divisions and boundaries and borderlines and saying, no, my mercy is flowing like a river and it's going to level the ground. The mercy of God is meant to reach everyone. God, God's mercy is meant to flow through us to others. But here's the deal. If we're honest on this Sunday morning in December, we'd say, but that's actually impossible. My mercy could never match God's. You're correct. If the point of the sermon was God's merciful, now go be like God. You're like, well, you're like, okay, it's kind of game over. You know, like, I'm out, I'm out, can't do it. How could my mercy possibly, possibly match God's? It's a miracle just like the miracle of the incarnation. I want you to think for a moment about Mary singing this song. God, your mercy is for everyone. Here is Mary carrying in her womb the embodiment of the mercy of God. What did Mary do to deserve this? Nothing. What did Mary do to become the carrier of the Son of God? Literally nothing. Except the receptivity that says, okay, be it unto me according to your word. I, I, I think the pregnancy of Mary is a metaphor to us of how the miracle, the miracle of God's mercy happens in us. It doesn't come from us. I could never show a mercy that matches Jesus, but you know who can? Jesus can. Jesus can. The hope of the world is not that we become like Jesus. The hope of the world is that Jesus in us reaches others. And so our prayer, when you're like, I don't know how to love this person. I don't know how to be merciful. Our prayer is not, God, make me like you. It's, God, would you be merciful to them through me? You be merciful through me. Let your mercy flow through me. Jesus, I, don't, I haven't figured out a way, but you do. So would you be merciful to me? And really all we're saying is, I'll take the position of receptivity and say, God, let your mercy flow to us. Not my mercy. Glenn's mercy ain't that great. Glenn's mercy will never be revolutionary. 
But God's mercy is. God's mercy is. And God's mercy is designed to flow through us to others. Paul gets it in Romans 15, verse 7. Paul, at the end of this beautiful epistle full of powerful truths about justification and the glory, the glory that's coming to the saints, he then says, look, let's deal with some pastoral issues. And he starts, interestingly enough, he's dealing with his own squabble with the church in Rome and it's about food offered to idols and feast days and holy days. And he's like, look, y'all got your own things that you're arguing about, things that you think make you better than others. He's like, can I just, just say this one thing to you, verse seven? So welcome each other in the same way that Christ also welcomed you. The only way mercy flows through us is when it actually flows through us. I sometimes say to people, The same door that lets God's mercy in is the same door that lets God's mercy out to others. And and, and we have this kind of division in our mind where it's like, well, I want the door to let mercy in, but I don't want the door that lets mercy out. I I got news for you. There's only one door. It's the same door. This is why Jesus, when he's teaching on the Lord's Prayer, says, you need to, whoever will be merciful to others will receive mercy. And those who will not be merciful will not receive mercy. It's not so much that it's a punishment as much as it is a description of how salvation works. The same door that lets mercy in is the same door that lets mercy out. And so Paul says, if Christ has already welcomed you, then let that mercy flow out to others. And then he says, it's to God's glory. It's for God's glory. If you're underlining, circle that word or that phrase, for God's glory. I'm saying that Christ became a servant of those who are circumcised for the sake of God's truth in order to confirm the promises given to the ancestors. What's he talking about? He's talking about Abraham. He's saying, remember, God always planned for his mercy to bless all the families of the earth. Well, in Jesus, he's done it. And he says, and so that the Gentiles could, underline this phrase again, glorify God for his mercy. Glorify God for his mercy. Here's the final thing to say today, God's, God is glorified when his mercy reaches others. God is glorified. This is the, the, the reason why Christians showing mercy is different than just humanitarianism or social good. Humanitarianism says, oh, well, let's just help those who are less fortunate. And then you leave kind of thinking, I'm so amazing. I'm so good. You leave glorifying you. But the Christian knows that if God's mercy flows through you and reaches others, God gets glorified. You don't walk away and saying, we are so awesome, man. This is why I cringe sometimes, even when people do, I love our church posts about what we're doing to help the, the poor and the needy. I understand it, but you know what I'd much rather if the post was, to God be the glory, that 80,000 pounds of food have been given out in Colorado Springs through you. To God be the glory that these things, that's much better than is in our church awesome. That's not the point. The point is for God to be glorified when his mercy reaches others. Pastor Brady wrote a book that released this week called Extravagant about the radical generosity, dangerous generosity of God. And in it, he tells the story of a young woman who several years ago found herself pregnant and in a terribly abusive relationship. She was in another state and her boyfriend would lock her in the closet every day. 
and leave for work and only let her out when he got home. And one day she'd had enough of that. And she found a way to pry a baseboard or something loose and was then able to jam the door and wedge the door and get it open. And she escaped from the closet that she'd been locked in daily and found car keys on the coffee table and just took off. Nothing else to her name except the clothes on her back, keys in her hand, car she was in, she started driving. And she heard a voice say, go to Colorado Springs. She's like, okay, I'm gonna go to Colorado Springs. She starts driving. And she was pregnant, and so every time she stopped for gas, people, there were some people that kind of wondered, I wonder what's going on here. And rather than judging her, the mercy of God f- came flowing through them to her. So, well, honey, where, where are you going? I'm going to Colorado Springs. Well, let us buy your tank of gas. Some people bought her a sandwich, different stops for food. Fed her along the way. She made it here. But she didn't have many resor- much in, in terms of resources and finances, and so she found a storage unit. And she would park her car inside the storage unit, lock the storage unit every night, and that's where she would sleep, in her car, in the storage unit. But she knew the day was coming when she was going to have this baby, and she wondered how that was going to pan out. Because maybe someone at the hospital would report her, and maybe she'd be separated from the baby. Who knows what was going to happen? The day comes to give birth to this child, and she goes into the hospital, and a nurse is attending to her and is caring for her. Oh, thank God for medical workers who know how to administer the mercy of God. Amen? And this nurse begins to talk to her. She says, you know, address. And she's like, I don't really have an address. And she takes the risk and shares with her. I'm actually living in my car. In my car, I park in a storage unit. And the nurse says, you know, we've got this thing in town called Mary's Home. And it's an apartment complex for single moms and their kids who are experiencing you know, maybe transi- transitory homelessness. And she says, okay, well, I mean, I, I, I do kind of need a place. And this nurse picks up the phone and calls Mary's home and finds out there's only one unit available and this lady and her newborn get accepted into it. She moves into Mary's home, completes the program, and in the process of completing the program, all expenses are covered. There's free counseling and care and career guidance and all of that. And, and, and they discover that she has this talent for restoring furniture and buying old furniture and restoring it and then selling it. And so she begins to get that going and it gets going and it starts to grow. And she graduates from the Mary's Home program and she's got this business that's blossoming now. And a year or so ago, she spoke at the most recent graduation for the women at Mary's Home and she said, today I live on my own. I'm making enough money to sustain myself. I'm no longer dependent on government subsidies. Everything changed for me because of the mercy of God. Amen. Give him glory for that. I love that story because there's no hero of that story except for God. Because what about every person at those gas stations? What about every person who talked to her along the way? What about that nurse? What about the women at Mary's? What, What about all of the people along the way. The only hero of the story is how God's mercy finds a way to reach people. And when God's mercy reaches others, God is glorified. Amen? God is glorified. This morning as we get ready to come to the table of the Lord, the invitation for us is to recognize that we're actually all in need of God's mercy. 
See, God's far-reaching mercy doesn't mean all will be saved. It means all can be saved. And maybe you were tripping on that phrase earlier when I said the revolution is universal, and you're like, well, is everybody, this automatic? It's not automatic. In fact, the wording in the verse that we read this morning says he shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. The perfect picture of this comes in Luke 5 where Luke tells a story of Levi throwing a great banquet for Jesus in his home and a large number of tax collectors and others sat down to eat with them and the Pharisees and the legal experts grumbled against his disciples and they said, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And I love Jesus' response. He says, look, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners to change their lives. Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. God's mercy is the medicine we need. The invitation for us is to confess that we're sick. (laughs) Is to say, actually, I, I, I need that. As long as we keep pretending that we're on the top of the hierarchy of mercy and I don't really need it. I'm good. I'm a pretty normal person. As long as we keep pretending that we're not in need of the medicine, the mercy of God will never be good news. But the moment we recognize that we all need God's mercy, all of a sudden it becomes good news that God's mercy is for everyone. God's mercy is for everyone. And it's good news because we all need God's mercy. Would you bow your heads with me? Begin to find the place where the Holy Spirit is working in you. Maybe for some of you today, it's about confessing your need for this. Say, God, remind me that I too am in need of your mercy. And maybe for others of you, it's a moment to say, God, I need you to let that same mercy flow out to others. And for all of us, receiving and giving mercy, may it result in God being glorified. This is, after all, Mary's song that is called the Magnificat. Oh, magnify the Lord. That's the goal. When we receive it, when we give it, May God be glorified in it.